Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Dr. Kate Shanahan, we have you back for another show. Thank you. It's great to be back, Brad. Right. We, we have our energy up and we'll jump in right where we left off. Uh, so your other, uh, your, your other claim to fame calling card is your discussion about sugar. And the one that sticks with me, speaking of, um, a pun is your analogy that, you know, when you, we know what sugar is and we know when our hands get dirty when we're making the lemonade, there's a sticky residue. And you informed us, uh, on a previous podcast and on the videos that, um, sugar, sugar is actually a sticky molecule and does the same thing when you ingest it into your body and goes and grabs onto important structural proteins and throws off their, um, their uh, proper mechanism. Can you discuss now about sugar, how, how that guy is a dietary enemy as well? Yeah, so sugar is sticky, and the uh, chemical reason that it's sticky is because it glycates proteins. So glycate just means um, it's a chemical word for when a sugar molecule attaches to another molecule. And so sugar feels tacky or like um, juices if they dry in your fingertips and jelly jars are hard to open if you got a lot of jelly around the edge because the glycation process occurs spontaneously over time and it's a um, it's kind of like a glue forming where you have the sugar um, molecules in the jelly like sticking to the proteins in your finger or they'll stick to each other too. They're, they'll stick to anything. Um, so they create kind of like a glue. And when you feel like a tacky resistance when you pull your fingers apart, that's because there was some glycation that was starting and you know not a lot. So you can still pull your, pull your fingers apart. But that same sort of stuff happens in the body when your blood sugar level is elevated. And you know, thankfully we have about 20 hormones that keep our blood sugar level within range, but we can push that system to the breaking point after years of, you know, way excessive carbohydrate consumption over, you know, hundred grams a day, I would consider excessive. And our, um, you know, our insulin, uh, we become insulin resistant and the glucagon and all the other proteins that we have to try to keep our blood sugar level in range. Just the system falls apart after a while of abuse, and by the way, the, um, the the vegetable oil has been recently shown to cause insulin resistance as well. So even though it doesn't have anything to do with carbohydrate content, the vegetable oil and the oxidative stress that it induces impacts the liver in such a way as it causes insulin resistance, even though there's no carbs in it. Um, so now we're getting deep into deep nutrition. <laughs> yeah. Um, we realize that most of the calories, because now for adding up, what was it, 30 to 60 coming from the vegetable oils, because they're calorically dense, nine calories per gram, they're, they're putting up big numbers. Uh, but then if we're looking at the rest of the pie chart, probably a whole ton of that is uh, sugar and other sources of refined carbohydrates, huh? 
Exactly. So, you know, somewhere between probably 60 and maybe even more than 80% of the average American's diet is composed of these vegetable oils and sugars. And that leaves 20% for all the real nutrition and, you know, hopefully non-toxic foods. Uh, and then uh, we have our blind spots, even if we're super healthy and health conscious. And I remember first getting your book and realizing uh, you have the four pillars of world cuisine. I think we talked about this in great detail at an earlier podcast, so we can direct listeners to there to get get the full rundown. But if you mention them briefly, and um, I'll realize that I was I was batting like 500, which is good for baseball, but not good for <laughs> diet, because two of these categories, I just wasn't making enough effort because they're so um, kind of unique and uh, not, you know, not a central focus of the standard American diet. So uh, I guess deep nutrition is still uh, framed largely around these pillars, right? A lot of the content. Yes. Uh The four pillars, right? Which are fresh foods. That's one. Fermented and sprouted foods. That's two. So fermented like yogurt and sprouted like sprouted grain bread. Um, Meat on the bone, which would be like your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, including the the gravy, you know, using some um, the bones and and, and uh, other uh, collagenous material to make a nice gravy, and then organ meats um, like liver and all the other parts that we don't really even know what to do with in this country, but that are just staples of the diet in many other countries, like you know kidneys, kidney pie, and um, in Scotland they they eat haggis, which is uh, like I think it's like stomach stuffed with a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Mike Myers didn't like it in that movie, but uh, nevertheless, very healthy for you. (laughs) Uh, And you kind of discovered this uh, due to your work with the the natives in Kauai who are eating that traditional diet and consuming the entire animal and things like that. Yeah. My neighbors down the streets were, were raising goats. And then I got invited to a potluck and I was amazed by all the colorful dishes that they had laid out on the, the, uh, the any kind buffet, any kind just means bring whatever's. And, um, and it was all these traditional things that was like, uh, liver and egg and, and, uh, hooves and stomach tripe and, uh, ear and Filipino fish head soup and, uh, blood pudding. I mean, it was incredible. And of course at the time I didn't, I didn't like know, anything about nutrition other than what I'd learned in medical school. So I left it to Luke to try it all. And he was, um, he was, he was, you know, going gangbusters on it all. And, and everybody was, uh, quite entertained with the, the white people, the howlies. <laughs> Trying anything and, uh, looking super healthy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hey, let's, uh, before we go, let's transition, uh, quickly to another topic, which is, um, uh, a good area of yours and that's, uh, fat burning. Um, and particularly of significance to the athlete, uh, because we constantly talk about this in the primal endurance world and the importance of an endurance athlete becoming, uh, skilled at burning fat during exercise rather than sugar or a greater percentage of fat than sugar, which is kind of the essence of, um, improvement and efficiency in the endurance sports. Uh, but beyond doing the proper training, uh, that we talk about so much, um, there's some dietary elements and some metabolic elements that, um, can affect your ability to burn fat. And I'd love to know more about those. Yeah. So one of the big, uh, the connections between 
this American experiment that we're on in the polyunsaturates and obesity is uh, related to, I, I think, the fact that um, the polyunsaturates do not burn well for energy. And um, they, in fact, they're not even initially burned in the mitochondria, right? So there's little power packs in our cell that burn energy are called mitochondria, and they can burn saturated fats really easily. But the polyunsaturates can't be burned very well. And I think that's a big issue when people have been on this American diet for a while and they get um, into trouble where they've been dieting and they hit a weight loss plateau because what happens is your body will uh, release the saturated fatty acids first and be able to burn those, but then you increasingly concentrate the polyunsaturates in, in your fat tissue, which are more resistant to being oxidized for the simple reason that they, um, they're harder to burn. They're more dangerous. So the body's reluctant to burn them because burning them does produce oxidative stress within the cell. And so, um, it's essential when you're on a weight loss diet, um, to make sure that your, the fats in your diet are the healthy natural fats that will come from things like coconut oil and butter and, um, you know, the nuts and other things that are completely, you know, healthy and a part of the primal, uh, prescription and part of the deep nutrition prescription as well. But, you know, fat burn is really essential for weight loss because I think it's maybe super obvious that if you can't burn fat, you're not going to lose your body fat. But it's also, you know, your energy coming from fat, your brain needs to be able to access energy from fat. And if it can't, it's going to tell you that you're hungry and that's going to drive you to eat. And you also can't lose weight if you're constantly hungry and eventually you're going to give in to eating some stuff that you, you know, if you've got calories in stored fat, you don't want to be eating, you know, a lot of calories in addition. Um, so it really is true. If you eat more fat, more nutritious sources of fat, you'll become better at burning fat. Right. You you need to have more of this the the saturated fats and the um not just because the natural fats have a lot of saturated fat in them, but also because they have antioxidants that protect the polyunsaturates that are in in the uh, whatever you know the seed that you might be eating, but also it can help to prevent oxidation or harmful oxidation of the polyunsaturates that are stored in your fat tissue. There was um. A statistic that I came across recently um, comparing the percentage of polyunsaturated or of one type of polyunsaturated fat in particular called linoleic acid in the adipose tissue of people in the 1940s. And the composition of female fat in the 1940s was something like 6% made out of this one kind of uh, polyunsaturated fat called linoleic acid. And now... The composition of a fem of a woman's fat, they didn't test men for some reason, is somewhere between 20 and 25% of this one type of polyunsaturated fatty acid. So we've changed our body composition at the molecular level to this stuff that is resistant to being burned for energy. No wonder it stays on, the stubborn, stubborn fat. No wonder we have to vacuum it out, huh? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's a big uh, it's really an experiment, you know. And we've never come across this kind of 
um, barrier before to weight loss where we're literally composed of stuff that the body does not want to burn for energy. So I know you're doing the fancy laboratory testing for, for patients, clients, get, uh, testing their fat burning with the, um, the machinery and getting uh, accurate reports. But uh, short of that, if you're someone who wants to improve your health and get better at burning fat, um, can we do a step-by-step send-off? Like I suppose number one would be to uh, completely eliminate the refined vegetable oil intake and then go from there? Absolutely. Yes. And, um, number two would be, don't be afraid of natural fats. So things like butter and eggs and cheese and, um, coconut oil and, you know, the, the foods that are satiating, um, and that we used to eat for breakfast because the worst time of day to have a high carb meal is breakfast. So that's another like takeaway, you know, if you want to have uh, carbs in your diet, the best time to do it is after you exercise. Um, So interesting. Don't eat carbs for breakfast because that will kick you off the fat burning train and get you on the sugar train. Right. Because, um, right. If you start your day with, um, with carb, that means that uh, your body's not going to say, let's say you have like a bowl of cereal and it's got somewhere around uh, 50, 60 grams of carb. Well, you, you don't need that much. You don't, your, your body can only store so much carbohydrate. And assuming that you spent the night laying still sleeping, you didn't burn any um, or hardly any, if any at all. And so your body stores of carbohydrate are are completely full. And all you're going to do with that is convert it to fat to, to be stored. And while you're converting carbohydrate to fat, your body is very unable to burn fat, right? Your body doesn't want to do these two opposite things at the same time. It's either going to be storing fat or burning fat. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do both at once. Uh, But then you say after exercise, it's okay. I'm, I'm assuming it's okay to consume nutritious carbs and you'd agree that it's never okay to slam a root beer or a bag of Skittles after your workout. Um, but tell us why uh, maybe this, uh, I mean, we talk more about this offline, so I'm, I'm playing dumb for the listeners, but I'm, I'm really intrigued where, you know, sometimes there's a difference of opinion in the, in the primal paleo ancestral health world where, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of an, uh, an anti-carb or a ketogenic, uh, cheering section. And now you're saying, that, hey, after exercise, um, carbs are okay. And in fact, it's when your your body can um, process them successfully that they're not as objectionable as, let's say, in the morning when your carb stores are already full and then you go and slam down 50, 100, 150 grams more. Uh, yes, because see, what happens is even the most fat-adapted ketogenic person is still going to have a certain requirement for glucose. It's nowhere near what the standard dietitians will tell you. You know, it's not a, not a full-on 100 grams a day, certainly not if you don't do much exercise. Um, you still have a little bit, right? So uh, if you don't exercise at all, you probably, the most fat adapted person still probably will need about somewhere between 30 and 60 grams of, of glucose. It's, we, you know, we really don't know much about the brain, um, the brain's ability to use fuels other than glucose. It's hardly been studied, but it seems as though even the most fat adapted people, still their brains do need some glucose just because of the way the neurons are structured. So you really can't get down to a zero requirement. Um, and and those people who exercise and when they exercise in, in um, the kind of exercise that requires sugar called anaerobic or high intensity exercise, they're 
burning sugar and your body, um, you know, cannot, um, make sugar from fat, but it can make sugar from protein. And so if you are a very avid athlete and you still, your body still needs this sugar to fuel your anaerobic or high intensity exercise, it's going to make it from protein, which is, um, not good. (laughs) You want that, you know, it's a waste of animal protein and you want it for your own muscles. Uh, right. So there's, there's, there's probably a um, uh, a recommendation to um, top off your glycogen tanks after after workouts when you're in that high demand point. Um, but what about if you're trying to drop excess body fat? How do you manage this uh, these these challenges of knowing that um, you know your carb intake reduced is going to stimulate more fat burning, but you don't want to mess up and and get depleted and uh, break down lean muscle tissue, which is so common with dieters. Right. Yeah. So I would say that most people who are trying to lose weight, um, the majority of them are, are not super exercisers also. I mean, in my experience, you know, as a, as a doctor, most of the people who need to lose weight also know they want, they should exercise, but they don't do a lot of exercise. And so they are really not burning all that much glucose. So it's really not an issue unless you're really quite an accomplished athlete, um, you know, to, to be, you're safe with keeping your carbs somewhere between 30 and 50 grams, which is, you know, right around the ketogenic diet recommendation, but maybe a little bit higher. Uh, and then getting over that, you're possibly introducing uh, the risk of not burning the excess body fat off that you desire or getting into dysfunction due to the typical high carb intake of standard American diet. Yeah, maybe. But you know what? There's a whole other factor here that we haven't talked about and that a lot of folks don't talk about. And that is the timing of meals. And that's why I love, um, you know, Marxist and who brought up the, I I think it was really him who popularized this whole intermittent fasting thing. And it made us all thinking about the timing of our meals. And, um, you know, ancestrally, we did not eat three meals a day. And that's an artifact of the industrial age uh, where, you know, the workers need breaks. And, um, if you go, you can have a whole bunch of carbs, but if you go 12 hours between meals, you're going to be burning fat ultimately, unless you had those carbs for breakfast, you know, but let's say you have your, all your carbs at dinner, you can have more carbs than obviously, because you're having now two meals worth of carbs in one meal. And, um, you get, I think a lot more benefit, with the same macronutrient breakdown if you have skipped an entire meal because you forced your body to dip into fat stores. Just the act of eating itself, even if you have a perfectly constructed uh, low-carb ketogenic uh, meal, you're going to be blocking your body's production of ketones because you just ate a bunch of fat that's now going to get used and stored. Oh, I see. Okay, so the ketones are uh, kicking in when... Mostly when you're not eating anything uh, or right. what, only the MCT fats, like we've been promoted to, to drink in our coffee or something? So, yeah. So your liver makes ketones um, under certain circumstances. And we can't force feed ourselves fat to force our liver to make those ketones. That doesn't work. Um, and certain fats are more amenable to 
becoming ketones. But uh, for example, um, the medium chain saturated fats that are in coconut oil and also in grass-fed butter um, <laughs> um, and in a lot of nuts, uh, tropical nuts, um, they are a little bit easier to, to burn um, and for the liver to start making ketones out of. But if you're overeating, it's not going to happen. And if you're eating, particularly if you're overeating in general, if you're eating too much carbs, but even too much protein. Oh, right. Because protein, um, protein also stimulates insulin and glucagon, something like that. It blocks the production of ketones. It's a, it's a, all, all those things you said are true, but it also blocks the production of ketones. It's got to do with uh, the um, oxaloacetate um, supply in the... Um, I can actually, if you wanted to post in show notes, I can get you um, a screenshot of the metabolic cycle. It's really good to see it because then it'll make a lot more sense why why it's so essential if you really want to, you know, bump up your ketones levels, you you also have to cut down your your protein intake, which may or may not be good. So, you know, I, that's why I'm not 100% on the full-on ketogenic diet, low protein all the time. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's good to burn fat. Um, ketones are great to be making a lot of the times, but you can you can get there other ways other than the macro construction of your diet. That's why I like the intermittent fasting. Um, what's also interesting that we jumped to, jumped over quickly was um, so if you're if you're doing intermittent fasting, you're um, you know you're fine tuning your fat adaptation, your insulin sensitivity. It's okay to go and have a a, a fun carb night where you're going out and having some desserts and um, not not obsessively limiting your carbs around the clock day after day after day, but just uh, kind of timing your meals uh, to the point where the damage is lessened. Absolutely, you know, especially if you. I like to think of carbs as something that we kind of earn, you know, by doing um, a good workout um, or even just you know fasting for a while because you're brain and other or uh, cells in your body will be burning through the stored glycogen. So, you know, if it's been a while since you ate anything, there's less glycogen. So there's room in um, those little glycogen suitcases in your muscles and all the cells in your body that store it. Oh my gosh, that's great. Now, what about um, uh, the notion that if you eat a bunch of carbs late in the day into the evening, um, you're going to be sleeping uh, in an insulin bath and waking up feeling funny or anything uh, to that notion? Or is that just uh, hearsay? It, you know, I, I think it's good every once in a while for to get that insulin bath because insulin is a um, pro- it's an anabolic hormone. And if you're trying to build muscle and bone, um, it, insulin actually helps. So once in a while, that kind of thing is good. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of folks worry that it'll become a slippery slope. You know, like if you go out to eat and you have a bunch of carb, um, uh, once, you know, a month, well, it'll become twice a month and it'll become twice a week. And next thing you know, you fell off the bandwagon. And that's, you know, that's a real concern and a real issue. You have to be aware of where you are mentally, whether or not you can do that. But beyond that, kind of slippery slope issue. Um, you know, I, I think it's, um, 
good once in a while to give your body these different metabolic conditions. Uh, well, they talk about carb refeeding and the fact, the idea that um, you might be fine tuning your insulin sensitivity by, um, or, or I should say it in the in the counter direction. Like if you're if you're continually uh, being strict and orthorexic about keeping those carbs low day after day, night after night, um, you start to become a bit of insulin resistant, and the the idea of, of splurging um, will. We'll try to choose uh, the most nutritious carbs. So we'll have that that sweet potato midnight snack instead of Ben and Jerry's or preferential to Ben and Jerry's. But that said, that um, it can be a, um, a hormetic stressor, what what you want to call it, to to stimulate that insulin production and, and improve your sensitivity. Right. Just to make sure that your uh, pancreas doesn't forget how to produce insulin. Exactly. It's like any kind of exercise, right? You want to uh, practice every once in a while. And so um, your hormone making um, uh, glands also need practice. <laughs> oh, this is funny. It's time for a commercial. Brad and Dr. Kate present the Cheesecake Factory special. Go in and say Dr. Kate said it was okay, and you can buy an entire cheesecake for $65 instead of 71 Oh my gosh. Life-changing podcast. We have permission to go enjoy the carbs. But the 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 um the front-loaded part there where uh, maybe we'll skip over that if we weren't listening carefully. Um the intermittent fasting, the windows where you're you're teaching your body to burn fat because you're not eating that three meals a day uh that that started with the factory workers, good point. That's where we want to get into a little bit of uh flexibility and perhaps intuitive patterns where, you know, we're waiting till we get hungry to eat? Does that sound like um, it goes hand in hand with the permission to consume carbs once in a while? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think, um, oh shoot, you said something about uh, waiting for permission and then I just forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. You, you had a good point <laughs> there. <laughs> oh, I said it goes hand in hand with the fasting and getting fine tuned at at burning fat and not uh, not slaving into constant um, you know constant regular meals where you're constantly reloading uh, and and um, you know never allowing your body to go hungry. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, so we, we just want to um, allow the the natural um, rhythms to kind of take place once in a while. I and mean, if you think about what the ancestral way of doing things, there were times where people just didn't get to eat for, um, but didn't get to eat very much for days in a row. And that's, that's like, you know, temp, temp, externally, um, enforced intermittent fasting. Oh, I know the thing I was thinking of is a lot of people say they don't have time to eat healthy, right? You know, I'm sure you've heard that. And I'm sure you've even considered that like, Oh, I don't have time to eat healthy. I'm just going to grab something. But instead of grabbing something, just skip it. <laughs> wow, very interesting. And I, I love closing on that because it'll probably uh, elicit a lot of questions and we'll get you back on to to talk further about this. It seems like uh, uh, possibly a, a subject that's become a little too controversial in terms of what's the optimal carb intake. And you're saying, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Don't, don't slam yourself when you're already full, such as breakfast. But after working out or in the evening after you've um, done some fasting and uh, paid attention to your hunger uh, and instead of just, um, you know, f f uh, uh, cut it off uh, advance, then we're a little more flexible and enjoying life a little more. Yeah. I mean, you can go up to a hundred, right? If you exercise 
exercise a lot, you know, a couple, maybe once a week, you could go that high if you don't have an issue with self-control. Like, you know, I might, <laughs> I, I can't keep chocolate in the house or cookies or anything like that, but you know, a, a homemade pizza once in a great while. Um, and obviously, you know, I don't have any, um, blanket recommendations for those without gluten issues or dairy issues to avoid those two kinds of foods. I, I feel like the really, um, the American experiment did not involve um, having us eat any more of those. The American the medical experiment involved having us eat more cheap food, the vegetable oils and the carbs. And so everybody really needs to uh, cut out the vegetable oils, be aware of your carb intake and cut down to, I, I, you know, I'd say a hundred should be a max for most people who aren't like professional athletes. And a good range is somewhere around, you know, 50 to maybe 70. Because if you have a, a lot of vegetables, which I recommend, it's hard to really be much under 50. Also, if you have like milk and stuff like that, there's carb in there as well. Um, however, a hundred is not a heck of a whole lot. That's not a lot of free passes to Cheesecake Factory. Sorry, we'll we'll have to cancel that sponsorship of the show. <laughs> um, but if you're looking at a hundred, and we we have some illustrations in the. Um, Primal Blueprint 21 Day Total Body Transformation where you're getting uh, some selective fruits, you're getting a ton of vegetables, and you're getting some incidental carbs from nuts and seeds and dark chocolate, but you're not, um, you know, you're, you're not, uh, necessarily enjoying giant bowls of popcorn like I've known to now and then when, when the urge strikes me. But again, the average is okay. So if we're sitting back and looking at a month rather than an obsessive day to day tracking. Yes, exactly. As long as you can do the the 1% or the 5% thing, because some people are more like all or none and they just mentally do better with none. <laughs> okay. Or, or, you know, consistently very limited. So it, it, again, it kind of depends on your personality type there. Maybe we need like a personality test. Throw in. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's, um, we could probably pick that up in another show or, um, uh, bring in Dr. Dr. Lindsay Taylor. We did some uh, podcasting and some filming about the psychological aspects of endurance training and setting goals and, and tackling dietary challenges in a healthy manner. So um, good to add that element to it. But for now, Dr. Kate Shanahan, so much to think about. Uh, go grab the new book, Deep Nutrition, dig into the references and the expanded content, the four pillars of world cuisine. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me and uh, helping to spread the word about the American experiment and how you can escape. <laughs> Love it. Sound bites. Show at 11. <laughs> yeah. Da, 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 da. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a Primal Health Coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest-growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. We also have payment plans available, so you can start immediately for just a dollar down. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. 
Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit primalhealthcoach.com and subscribe.